Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, Major League Baseball's All-Star Game is in Denver next Tuesday, and baseball fans are already showing up in droves. This isn't a one-day, one-game event. Coming up, we'll learn about the economic impact of the big event. And we'll also take a look at how big public gatherings like this fit into Colorado's coronavirus response and vaccination strategy. That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. On Thursday, Governor Jared Polis ended the state's health emergency declaration, saying the pandemic executive orders are no longer needed. We wore masks. We practiced social distancing. We sacrificed time and holidays with loved ones to keep ourselves and our communities safe. And by and large, it worked. In the announcement, he said he is now refocusing the pandemic response to prioritize the state's economic recovery and vaccination efforts. Over the Independence Day weekend, Polis announced that Colorado had hit President Biden's goal of having 70 percent of adults receiving at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine by July 4th. But some regions in the state have rates much lower than that. And cases around the nation and in Colorado are starting to inch up again almost entirely among those not fully immunized. For more on the current state of the pandemic, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Samet, Dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. Dr. Samet, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks, happy to join again. So some of the messaging floating out there is, hey, we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, Certainly some people are taking that even a step further, saying we did it, we're done. You have been a little more cautious about saying that COVID-19 is truly behind us. I want to start by asking you about the epidemic curve, how it's behaving here in Colorado. What What is the state of the pandemic? For a start, I wish the epidemic curve were a little better behaved than it actually is. So our curve, of course, has been going down. We were as high as 1,800 plus people in the hospital with COVID-19 back in um, Late, late December, January. Now that number is about 280, but it's not going down steadily and progressively. We're stalled out a bit right now on a plateau. And over the last few months, general tendency is down, but these plateaus keep happening. When you say, you know, we're stalled, is that related to vaccinations? Uh, I mean, as we mentioned, 70% have gotten one dose, but that has been really uneven across the state. And there are some counties doing really well with vaccinations, but other pockets of people have not gotten the vaccine. Help us understand a little bit about the risk that these clusters of unvaccinated people pose. 70% across the state does not tell you that there are regions and counties with rates of vaccination among eligible adults down in the 30%, uh, 30% plus range. So that's one problem. Of course, the other is that we have the Delta variant, which uh, is now accounting for most cases in the state. We know it's more transmissible. So in a sense, we have a, if you will, a competition between this very transmissible variant and the fact that there's Still a pool of people out there, unvaccinated, still getting uh, infected. 
in a sense, we've divided up into two types of Coloradans now, vaccinated and unvaccinated. I want to get more into the Delta variant. You just mentioned it's a predominant strain now here and that it may be more transmissible than other variants. If that is the case, does this change herd immunity target levels? How many people need to be vaccinated to contain the spread? Yeah, it does. And uh, the more transmissible the strain, the higher the level of immunity we need in the population to reach herd immunity. I mean, I think right now that's an elusive goal. I think the real goal right now is to get as many people as vaccinated as possible. You know, the 70% target was a target. There wasn't a target that turned into, well, we fit 70%, the pandemic is over. If only the world were so simple. You write this week that public health has work to do in addressing vaccine hesitancy. I'm wondering if the concern over the Delta variant is enough to move the needle for people who have so far refused to get it. The facts speak for themselves. I mean, the Delta variant has not moved the needle in Colorado. And, you know, the vaccination rate, how much vaccine we're giving out just continues to drop even as we face the challenge and the risks for the unvaccinated of this more transmissible variant. The state is working very hard. Local public health is working very hard to try and persuade people to be um, vaccinated. But clearly, for those who are unvaccinated now, they are a tougher and tougher group to sort of turn around and get them vaccinated. What are your thoughts on the incentives that Colorado and other states have used to encourage more people to get immunized? I I guess the real question is, do these incentives work? And, you know, I haven't seen too much data. I've seen a little bit, I think, most recently from Ohio, if I've got the state right. Not too much difference. You know, there's not been a sharp change in the rate of vaccination because these steps were taken. It's not to say they weren't worth trying. I think we should try everything. And if a relatively modest amount of money might up the vaccination rate, it's a good thing to do. As we look at the new school year getting ready to start pretty soon, many parents of young kids are anxiously awaiting news that kids younger than 12 will be eligible for the vaccine. And I'm wondering if there are trials underway or happening anytime soon? Yes, trials are underway. I don't think we're going to see vaccines approved, or at least under emergency use authorization, my understanding is till years in, probably in that range of time, but not not for the school year. Let's switch gears because we have a major event in Denver coming up next week. The All-Star Game is happening on Tuesday at Coors Field. It's expected to draw tens of thousands of people from out of state who may or may not be vaccinated. What are your concerns about this, if any? If we're going to bring about 50,000 people together, and uh, presumably they're going to be yelling and cheering for something throughout. It's an opportunity for, of course, for spreading to uh, occur. And, th- and this is where you get down into the challenge of having, you know, the majority of adults and, you know, increasing numbers of adolescents vaccinated, but yet many people who aren't. So for those who are unvaccinated, some inevitably will be infected. They may spread their uh, infection, the you know the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I, I guess the other thing to remember here is that people who are vaccinated are not 100% protected. Sitting in a stadium, perhaps with somebody sitting above or below who may be spewing out the um, virus. Yep, cheering, yelling. There's a potential, there's a potential for uh, infection. I, I mean, I guess on the positive side, 
the event is outdoors, the air is not being captured, and the stadium is not incredibly dense uh, in its city, but still people will be adjacent to one another. Think if somebody is saying, gee, I really want to go to the game, I'm a little bit worried, I'm vaccinated, you know, they can wear a mask to provide some protection uh, for, uh, for themselves. But it sounds like if you've been vaccinated fully, you're pretty good to go. You're pretty good to go. It's not like if, if you said, gee, is there more risk of my getting infected today because I'm going to go to the All-Star game than not going to the All-Star game? Sure. Is it a really big risk? I don't think so. Dr. Jonathan Samet is Dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. Thanks so much again for speaking with us today. Happy to join you, Aaron. Governor Jared Polis signed a bill this week that aims to rein in paramedics' ability to sedate people in situations like the one involving Elijah McLean. The state's public health department reacted by suspending the waiver program that has allowed hundreds of similar sedations in recent years. KUNC investigative reporter Michael DeYoana has been covering these issues for more than a year, and he's with us now. Hi, Michael. Hi, Henry. First, tell me about the reaction from state health officials. Hours after the governor signed the bill, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment notified medical directors around the state that it would be suspending its waivers program, which allows paramedics to administer ketamine to extremely agitated people who show signs of a rare condition called excited delirium. The suspension, the health department said in a statement, is to modify its program to, quote, ensure it aligns with state law. And that law is House Bill 1251. So, Michael, what does this all mean? Well, it means that paramedics cannot use ketamine in the way that they did with Elijah McClain after Aurora police restrained him in 2019. And also in more than 900 other cases in a two and a half year period that KUNC was the first to reveal in an investigation last year. Can you briefly give us the background on how paramedics are allowed to sedate people? It's a practice that's controversial among medical professionals. On one side are the emergency doctors who support it as an intervention for people in crisis, people with excited delirium. These are people with extreme agitation who present possibly with bizarre behaviors, panic, aggression, shouting. Uh, They can get so worked up that they may suddenly die. Uh, Paramedics are allowed to use ketamine because it sedates people quickly so they can be rushed to medical care. Now, on the other side of this are doctors like anesthesiologists who say that using ketamine in the field is dangerous. And there's also the American Medical Association. Its House of Delegates last month issued a statement saying that current evidence does not even support excited delirium as a diagnosis. And that draws into the question the basis for sedations, including the hundreds that we uncovered. As a reminder, paramedics said Elijah McLean, who was 23 and black, showed signs of excited delirium before they administered ketamine to him. Yes, uh, though his family and supporters point to body camera footage and his attempts to communicate with first responders, they say he did not have the condition and should not have been sedated. Moreover, an independent report to Aurora found that paramedics appeared to rely on officers' impressions of McLean rather than their own assessment. I should add that an autopsy was inconclusive uh, regarding uh, McLean's cause of death. So this is the backdrop that leads to the bill's signing. What other reactions have you seen? 
One of the bill's main sponsors, Representative Leslie Harrod, called it a significant step forward to improve policing and end the misuse of ketamine. And the governor, in his signing statement, said that chemical restraints like ketamine should only be used in true medical emergencies and done so under the supervision of a trained medical professional. But not everyone was satisfied. The county sheriffs of Colorado, the Colorado Association of Chiefs, of police and the Colorado Fraternal Order of Police issued a joint statement saying the new law will, quote, chill critical communication among first responders and ultimately hurt patient care. And how could that happen? Among its many provisions, the law prevents police from unduly influencing paramedics to administer ketamine to a person and provides penalties, including possible criminal charges. Law enforcement organizations are often the first on the scene, and uh, in their statement, they said they may need to share information about a person with medics to help that person. This law, they said, may prevent officers from doing that because they fear being perceived as directing EMS personnel to use the drug. So where do things go from here, Michael? The new law has lots of other details in it and um, could allow ketamine to still be used in medical emergencies. But the words excited delirium aren't in the law at all. And there are new requirements that if it is used, there are safeguards like to properly estimate the weight of a person to ensure they're given a proper dosage. In McLean's case, for instance, the independent investigation found that he was given a dose based on a gross overestimation of his weight. So it sounds like a lot of changes the state health officials are going to have to navigate. Yes. And last year, not long after we reported that paramedics had used ketamine to sedate people hundreds of times and that there were complications in about 17 percent of those cases, the state's top public health official announced a thorough review. That review was expected to be done months ago, but has continued behind closed doors. That process, which involves an undisclosed list of professionals, could also inform the next steps. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment said that the review and a revised guidance for ketamine waivers may determine next steps. All right. KUNC's investigative reporter, Michael DeOanna, thanks. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. NASA is planning two missions to Venus for the end of the decade. They will explore Venus's atmosphere and surface, and Colorado scientists are a large part of the effort. KUNC's Ashley Picconi explains how and why we're going back to the planet known as Earth's evil twin. Within our solar system, Venus is the closest planet in size to Earth, and it's about the same distance from the sun, which is why some scientists call it our sister planet. But that may not be a fair comparison. Venus is really a a version of hell. Larry Esposito is with the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado Boulder. And anything that tries to land on Venus, he says, would be immediately destroyed by the heavy, toxic atmosphere. Temperature is hot enough to melt lead. The atmosphere has a pressure 100 times that here on the Earth. It's completely unbreathable, no oxygen, full of sulfurous gases and sulfuric acid. 
It's been nearly 30 years since NASA last sent a mission to study Venus. Since then, they've explored Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and even Pluto. But Esposito says Venus still poses some important questions. It's a place that started out like the Earth, and the question then is, how did it diverge? How did Venus become such a terrible place, such an evil place, while the Earth is an abode where people and all sorts of life organisms can live quite well. Those are some of the questions that two new NASA missions called Veritas and Da Vinci will try to answer. Veritas will map the surface from orbit. Da Vinci will send a probe into the atmosphere. But first things first, this is where Tim Lin enters the picture. We're gonna be supporting both those missions by helping with the mission design, building the spacecraft, integrating the payloads, getting both of the spacecraft launched, and then doing the, the mission operations here in Littleton, Colorado. Lynn is the program manager at Lockheed Martin. He says each mission poses its own challenges for the team. Veritas needs to slow down and get into orbit, while Da Vinci needs to withstand intense heat as it descends towards the surface of the planet. We think we have really two low-risk programs at the end of the day because of a lot of the heritage that we can draw from prior missions that we built. The missions won't launch until 2028 and 2030, but the data they'll provide has a wide range of applications. When you look at the atmosphere of Venus, it's this you know very rich CO2, dense CO2 atmosphere that drives this massive greenhouse effect. Constantine Sang is a scientist at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder and a co-investigator on the Veritas mission. He says Venus might help researchers understand climate change on Earth. And so that has analogies for potentially the future of the Earth. We're seeing potentially an end state of, of, of Earth uh, in, in studying Venus. But Sang says the results won't stop there. They go beyond Earth and even beyond our solar system to exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets around other stars, and astronomers have discovered thousands of them in the past 25 years. A lot of them you know, are very close to, the, to their parent sun, uh, very much like Venus's. And so the question is, you know, when we see a Venus around uh, another star, star system, are they, are they like Venus or are they more like Earth? NCU Boulder Venus researcher Kevin McGoldrick says these are the kinds of questions that will be important as scientists search for habitable planets or signs of alien life. If we were an extraterrestrial alien scientist studying our solar system with the capabilities that, that we humans have today, we'd look at our solar system and we'd likely conclude that there are two Earth-like habitable planets in the solar system we'd be really hard-pressed to tell the difference between Earth and Venus. Although he's not directly involved, McGoldrick says the data the missions collect will be useful for everyone studying Venus. They represent what I hope is just kind of the beginnings of what would be a concerted effort to really fully understand Venus, which is the the most Earth-like planet that we know of anywhere other than the Earth. It may be a while before Veritas and Da Vinci actually get to Venus, but he says it will be worth the wait. Ashley Picconi, KUNC. Baseball fans are descending on Denver in droves for the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, which takes place at Coors Field on Tuesday. Just a few months ago, these same fans would have had to travel to Atlanta to see the game, where it was initially planned to be held. But in early April, MLB officials announced they were pulling the game out of Georgia in opposition to sweeping changes to Georgia's voting laws, enacted back in March. 
it wasn't long before the organization announced the game would be coming to Denver, and with it a big economic impact, expected by some to be in the ballpark of tens of millions of dollars. Here to break that down for us is Brian Lewandowski, Executive Director of the Business Research Division at CU Boulder's Lead School of Business. Brian, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks, Erin. It's nice to be here. Let's talk about where the economic impact comes from. I know we can start the list with ticket sales themselves, hotel reservations, and things like that, but what else drives this economic impact? So when we're doing an economic impact study of an event like this, we would normally take a look at ticket sales. Uh, We take a look at the visitors spending and the vendors spending. So all of those visitors come in, they book hotel rooms, they go out to restaurants, and they go shopping in the broader Denver metro region. And all of that has a positive economic impact on the region. And I think this comes at a critical time, uh, not only for Denver, but any city across America or around the world where the tourism industry has been depressed. So normally in July, we would uh, normally see Denver hotels pretty booked up, Denver restaurants pretty full, a lot of activity on the 16th Street Mall. Uh, But this year is different. We're coming off the pandemic. We are still well below our peak employment in the tourism industry. Tourism retail sales continue to be down even compared to April of 2019. So there's that nice comparison over time there. Um, So it it shows that there's still capacity left in our tourism industry. So this is a nice shot in the arm for the industry. I know that the impact of hosting something like the All-Star Game is not a one-size-fits-all number. Uh, It varies from city to city. What are some of the factors at play when we talk about Denver versus another city? It's partially the capacity of the market, and, and Denver is a pretty large market now where we're able to host a lot of people from out of town. And the duration of the activities, this isn't a one-day, one-game event. There's a lot of activities that are happening during the All-Star Week in Denver that'll bring people in for a slightly longer duration. Then, of course, there's the impact of uh, what people can do while they're here. Well, I'm already in Colorado. What else do I want to see and do while I'm in Colorado? So we hope that people will either come early or extend their stay after, which has an additional economic impact. Let's talk about some of the downsides to hosting the All-Star Game. Uh, you know, crowds of people come to my mind. What, what are some of the potential issues? Let's start out with the, the three benefits. One that we already mentioned is the, the boost to the tourism industry that certainly could use a little bit of extra help right now. Uh, another benefit is that this provides worldwide exposure for Colorado. This allows people to see Colorado on their television screen or on their tablets. And so those positive impressions are worth something when it comes to promoting Colorado tourism. And then there's this positive signal that that this shows that Colorado really is open for business. And we just hosted the soccer games a couple of weeks ago. Now we're going to be on global broadcast television showing that we're hosting the, the baseball game and that the stadium is full. So all of those things positively reflect on the state. You know, I think you putting me on the spot a little bit thinking about some of the, the negative sides of it. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that the influx of people within the Denver metro region is something that we haven't really experienced in a while, probably to this magnitude. Um, if you've been out to the airport lately, it feels uh, very busy. That's something we haven't felt in a while, if you've flown anywhere over the last year and a half. So this return to normalcy 
may have some downsides when it comes to all of the people that have been absent for the last year and a half. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But like you said, coming off the pandemic, this probably does feel like a welcome shot in the arm, even even when it's a pain and you're stuck on the crowded train at DIA. Well, and baseball is a fun thing, right? So, I mean, how nice is it that we're sitting here now in the middle of 2021 and we're we're talking about baseball, which is a very, you know, it's 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 a longtime American sport. It's a it's our favorite summer pastime. And we're talking about a, a full stadium and all of these positive activities that revolve around this game. I think that I mean it, it it's so nice to be talking about this now versus COVID-19 and lockdowns and stay-at-home orders and wearing masks and you know everything else that came along with it. So this is just For me, this is really a breath of fresh air. It seems Denver sees most of the benefit from this, you know, deluge of fans and visitors spending. Will any of those dollars make their way to other parts of the state? I think this impact will spread out more around the state. I mean, sure, it is a little Denver-centric when it comes to where the game is being hosted and who directly benefits from those hotels being full and, and restaurants filling up. But I, I am optimistic that there are people that extend their stay and they go up to Rocky Mountain National Park or they go visit some of our mountain resort towns uh, while they're here. I mean, if, if you're going to make the trip to Colorado, might as well see a little bit more of Colorado. So I, I think we will see an influx of uh, travelers hit more of the state because of this event. Brian Lewandowski is executive director of the Business Research Division at CU Boulder's Lead School of Business. Brian, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Aaron. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how one rural community in Colorado is banding together to cope with not having a local pharmacy. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Aaron O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.